tweet at Miriam O'Call. Now, my next guest is a member of Broadcasting Royalty. In his half-century with the BBC, David Dimbleby has held almost every UK-British Prime Minister in living memory to account. He's piloted Britain through the last 10 general elections and anchored live coverage of world events from President Nixon's visit to the UK to the recent funeral of Queen Elizabeth II. Well, in his just-published memoir, Keep Talking, A Broadcasting Life, he recounts many of the extraordinary moments in a career spanning more than 70 years and he joins me now. David Dimbleby, good morning to you. Good morning, Miriam. Thank Thank you for asking me on your show. I loved your book. We'll talk about it in a moment. But first, I feel compelled to ask you about the extraordinary weeks we've just seen in UK politics. I mentioned there in my intro, you've interviewed almost every British PM in modern history. When you look back at the political generations you have covered, how do you think this one rates? Low, I'd say. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, it's an extraordinary spectacle to see a party like the Conservative Party, which for a long time has, um, you know, held power and has seen off Labour time and again, except for brief periods of Wilson and Blair and and a little bit of Brown, uh, but a party which prided itself on it, its sort of ear for the public and on its ability to uh, negotiate all the complexities of politics um, in a sort of in a sort of satisfactory way, falling apart in such total disarray. It's quite a strange sight. I mean, I'm not a I'm an observer of all this. I'm just a common or garden broadcaster. I don't, I'm not, uh, you know, involved in the way that these parties work and I'm not a kind of acute observer, but I watch with a sort of astonishment at a party so obviously losing its way and stumbling and in disarray and arguing with itself. And I mean, day by day, the headlines, I mean, even this morning, more headlines about Mm. Gavin Williamson, you know, and Suella Braverman and all that. It is, it is, it's strange. I mean, I think this, you know, politics is a very difficult business in a democracy. And I think things do sometimes just seem to fall apart. You can't expect government always to be um, Mm. calm and regulated and ordered. But I must say, I've never seen anything like this. Now, your book is fascinating. You commentated recently, of course, for the BBC from Windsor on the Queen's funeral. I think it's reported to be the most watched TV event in history. And your dad, of course, who you write about lots in the book, Richard, actually covered her coronation. Do you remember much, David, of your dad's broadcasts or do you remember listening to him on radio and television? I do remember listening and, yes, the coronation I remember because I was, I think I was 14 and I walked with him. Uh, we, we stayed the night on a boat on the Thames for some reason. He he always liked sort of dramatic gestures, so he thought he'd stay on a boat instead of staying in a hotel. The police picked us up and took us to Westminster Pier, and we walked in pouring rain, I remember, to Westminster Abbey, where he peeled off in his top hat, kind of waving to the crowds. And my mum and I went off to watch from a shop in Regent Street. Uh, I listened to that broadcast, and, I, I, of course, I've listened to the things from the war, which were really powerful when I was only a child. I've listened to them on recording since. And, um, and the, the, you know, the broadcast from Belson that mm-hmm. he did. Uh, and and I, I don't know, 
he had a he had a very good warm broadcasting manner really that was what set him apart i think and why he became such a figure in british broadcasting and that and also because he sussed out it's odd this isn't it when you look back but he sussed out that television was the way to go not radio apologies to you miriam but anyway <laughs> that, <laughs> that that television was the future well i actually now of course it seems that the thing is changing and radio is becoming the future. More and more people are listening to radio and podcasts and all the rest and the human voice rather than the pictures. Um, but, uh, yes, I remember that. And I remember just the warmth of his voice, I think. And, and also sometimes the majesty, if I could put it like that, mm. of his prose. I mean, there's some wonderful broadcasts that have been kept. One of the lying in state of King George VI, goodness knows, in Westminster Hall, which is a beautiful broadcast. Did you learn much from him as a broadcaster? I think you talk about how it's important to speak to one or two people when you when you look at a camera. I mean, did you learn that yourself innately or did you learn that from your father? I, I think I, I don't I think I learned it by watching him, perhaps, and seeing how he was much more natural in front of the camera than many other people are. And we didn't talk about broadcasting at all, oddly, even though I started when I was 12 um, doing, doing doing a record request show on Boxing Day. Um, I don't know why or how that came about, but anyway. Um, and we subsequently, we did a few family films about travels around Europe when travel restrictions were being lifted. Goodness knows they're coming down now with Brexit. But anyway, travel restrictions were lifted and people were going abroad much more. And we did some films. But we never talked about techniques of broadcasting or how to do it. The only advice—I I mean, I, the only advice he ever gave me—I remember was a, I was doing a, as a as a young broadcaster. I was doing a program with young people about moral issues, like whether sex before marriage was moral or immoral, that kind of mm. topic of the sixties. And he said, "You must stop moving your feet around so much." That's the only <laughs> advice he ever gave me: stop moving your feet around. Also, um, watching the coverage of Brexit and, of course, those two words of yours went viral, we're out. Do you plan something like that or did that just happen on the night? That just happened. Oh. I, I find um, rather like the words that I used at uh, the internment of the Queen at um, St. George's Chapel, Windsor, that the last words I write, I sort of do it at the time. Mm-hmm. And at the time, it was four in the morning on Brexit night, and we were not allowed, the BBC being the sticklers for accuracy, or supposedly so, uh, we weren't allowed to announce the result until it had actually been statistically proven that the Brexit side had won. And I was thinking, well, how do I do this? And I suddenly thought, yes, this is actually a very big moment, and you must make something of it. And I remembered I'd done the broadcast way back in 75 was it when we joined Mm. the common market as it was and i sort of scribbled on a bit of paper actually and that's it we're out which seemed to me a blunt simple way of putting it i don't know why it went viral yeah well it certainly did go viral i suppose it was the it did i know i don't know why though maybe it was kind of like the curtain falling i suppose Mm. though brexiteers would say it was the curtain rising but i'm not sure they're right in your last few years anchoring Question Time, which you obviously did brilliantly, I think right up until the age of 80, did you notice, David, the audience became more divided, for instance, on something like Brexit or not? Uh, yes, very much so. And 
the thing I enjoyed about Question Time was hearing a cross-section of voices from the the public. And I did a lot of work to encourage uh, people who came, and we were choosing them carefully to be a political balance and gender balance and racial balance and all that. But when they actually came to the studio, I always used to go and talk to them before the program and say, look, this is your program. This is not my program. And it's not the panel's program. The the panel are here for you. So you must you must make something of it. Say the things you want to say. And as um, the, the political world became more divided, I mean, it I remember first over the, do you remember the great expenses scandal that we yeah. had in Britain about people charging for flower, flower baskets hanging outside their yeah. um, bungalows in, you know, wherever. And um, I, um, I, I, I felt the, the two things happened really. I think the program in a way gave a voice to people. They felt they were, this was their moment to speak and they were entitled to speak. And then um, as Brexit came along and issues of immigration came along. Um, certainly, you know, the people became very, not strident, but strong and vociferous. Yes. And on that, you don't spare criticism in the book, in your memoir. I mean, you're very honest about the BBC's handling of Jimmy Savile to Martin Bashir's luring of Princess Diana to Panorama. But you do believe passionately in public service broadcasting. So speaking there about Brexit, what about impartiality and this debate about about both sidism? What's your views on that? I'm not a great believer that what is called both sidism is a mistake. I mean, people have said, well, on Brexit, for instance, give an mm. example, um, the bulk of economists said it was bad for Britain and would be an economic disaster. One or two economists said, on the contrary, it would be good, the key one being Professor Patrick Minford at Cardiff University. And the complaint was he was always on, and then, you know, you'd cull from the other great mass of economists, and that this is both sideism, hearing both views. I think the ideas are more important than the weight of opinion behind them. And that actually the way to do that is not to say, oh, we're not going to have Minford because he's the only one who believes in Brexit. We're not going to have him. We'll just have the economists who believe in it. I think that would be doing a disservice. But I think what you can say is, how is it that you're the only one on this side Mm -hmm. and there are 50 economists on the other side? Mm -hmm. You know, you can make a merit of minority but I don't think both sideism, if it excludes the minority view, is the right way to go. I mean, even on issues like climate change, I think you've got to hear what other people are saying. Or on vaccination for COVID, you've got to hear what people are saying, because that's at the heart of getting at the truth of things. So the idea that both sideism, if it means giving an equal balance in the way you talk to them, no, I don't believe in that. I believe you cross-examine minorities quite toughly when the preponderance of view is is another way. Um, but but to exclude them, I think, is a mistake. I don't understand what both sideism is. That's I mean, interesting. you know, I, I don't think it I don't think it makes sense. We don't we don't act on both, both sideism in our own lives, do we? If you have a family dispute, mm. you don't say, well, it's five of us against one of you. So shut up. <laughs> uh, do you? You, no. you, you sort Mike of listen like to, to but... that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we'd long to. Yes, quite right. 
What about, though, like <laughs> impartiality? I mean, for instance, I, I find it fascinating. I think your wife, Belinda, says she has no idea how you even vote. So you clearly do not believe that you should be expressing your views and telling everyone how, what you think. I don't think, like I said at the beginning, I'm I'm just a I'm just a, a common or garden broadcaster. My job isn't to tell people what I think. My job is to describe as far as I can and talk to people about their opinions. I don't think my opinions matter a jot. The other thing that's really interesting is your 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 wife says you don't really like socialising that much. I read this interview, which I thought was fascinating, <laughs> yes. like you're shy and you find big social events a nightmare. Is this all true? And it seems to be yes, very odd true. for someone who does what you do for a living for 70 years plus. Well, what I do for a living, of course, is a cover for being able to talk to people, which I love doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so with a microphone in hand and a camera running, I'm happy to talk to anybody and everybody and indeed getting information for broadcasts. I love doing all that. No, I think she meant I'm I'm not a great party goer. You know, I'm not the life and soul of the party. I mean, there are people who are. My my old um, companion, Robin Day, was always the life and soul of a party and would sing musical songs and be a sort of <laughs> gay old stager. And um, I'm, 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 I'm not like that. No, I'm, I'm rather private outside broadcasting. I mean, broadcasting, that's why I think perhaps why broadcasting has been such a big part of my life, because it's given me all the interest and excitement and pleasure of meeting people. But in a way, under the cover of being a broadcaster, I can talk to anybody. You know, I get to costas on the street often about question time, for instance. People come up and say, oh, you know, I learned everything I knew about British politics from watching you at 14. We used to debate question time in school the day after and all that. I find that hugely rewarding and exciting. Mm. But um, in, in private, I'm not totally... Um, shut off, but I'm not. It's not my favourite form of discourse. So, what's your like that. secret to health and longevity? I mean, I read this, and maybe it's completely wrong. I mean, most people are, you know, running, walking, doing and the healthy things. Did you take up smoking in your seventies? Uh, well, that's not entirely true. I've always oh. smoked cigars, to tell you the truth. Okay, but I'm not allowed to talk about smoking because it's a very bad habit, and we mustn't. We mustn't give the oxygen of publicity to bad habits, Miriam. You, we mustn't. And you are no, like you're heading towards your mid-80s. Everyone in the interview says you look as good as you ever did. You sound great. So what are your secrets to longevity? Uh, <laughs> I have no idea. How does one know? I mm. mean, I enjoy life. I love sailing. I love my family. I love where I live on the South Downs in Sussex. And I love broadcasting, actually. The greatest danger to me is stopping broadcasting, I think. I might hang up my clogs along with my microphone, which I hope I won't do. But you're never going to retire, didn't you say that? You don't believe in this notion of retiring. Well, I I mean, it's a notion if you have a, you know, if you have a job that is not your favourite thing and where there's a time limit on doing it and or where you've been slogging away to keep your family in bread on the table for years and then you have a pension and at last you can do the things you want to do, then of course retirement makes sense. But if actually what you enjoy doing is the work you do, I mean, you can hardly really in a way call it work for me. It's been all the way. It's been pleasure. I mean, I've enjoyed everything I've done, the travels I've had, the programs I've done, the people I've met, the politicians I've interviewed. I've enjoyed it all, you know. And so... 
it's hardly like work, to tell you the absolute truth. It's a sort of way of life for me. That's why retirement isn't quite on the cards, if I can avoid it, though I don't know whether anybody will go on wanting me to I talk think, until I'm on my deathbed. <laughs> I think they definitely will. Your book, it's a great read. Um, it's called Keep Talking, A Broadcasting Life. It's published by Hodder and Stoughton and it's available now. You're a lodestar for many people as a political interviewer. So thanks so much, David, for chatting to me this morning.